One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Battlegrounds Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Every week, we try to give you a mix of historical context, expert analysis, and the latest news. And in part two of this episode, we'll discuss the week's developments on the military, political, and diplomatic fronts. But first, we're going to hear from uh, a very experienced Anglo-Ukrainian journalist, Askel Kruselnitsky, an old friend of mine as it happens, who in 2006 published An Orange Revolution, A Personal Journey through Ukrainian history, highly recommended. Um, Askel's just returned from Ukraine, where he's been for the last six months. He's been in the big cities and on the front lines. And we asked him to bring us up to date with what's currently going on in terms of the geographical location of the fighting. There are two main bodies of fighting. Um, In eastern Ukraine, in the area which is called Donbass, which comprises of two Ukrainian provinces, Luhansk, most of which is now in um, Russian hands, and Donetsk. And the other major area of fighting is in southern Ukraine, um, in areas around the city of Kherson, which is the capital of the Kherson region, and also in parts of Zaporizhia province and Mykolaiv province. But these are all in the south, and uh, the battle there is for control of the uh, Black Sea coast and the vital ports um, uh, that lay along that coast. So has the, has the tempo changed much in the last couple of weeks, or is it are we into a kind of uh, de facto stalemate, at least for the time being? Um, no, it has it has changed. In the east, where uh, we recall that earlier this summer, uh, be, uh, the Russians were making um, slow but steady progress by um, using their enormous superiority in artillery and other uh, weapons, but mainly in artillery. They have um, about eight to ten artillery pieces for every um, Ukrainian artillery piece and much more ammunition. And they were using very crude uh, but uh, horribly effective um, tactics, which was just pummeling these areas, just saturating them with um, rockets and artillery fire and destroying everything in their way. So towns such as Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, uh, where the Ukrainian forces did make a stand for, uh, for months. The Russians eventually took them by just, um, destroying them and, uh, uh, just laying down huge, uh, artillery barrages. In, uh, the south of Ukraine, 
the battle is is different. Whilst in eastern Ukraine, um, it was about fighting in the in the cities, house to house fighting, and artillery barrages. The Russians have been trying to use their artillery superiority in numbers in southern Ukraine, but the terrain is different there. Rather than fighting for cities, it's been fighting for territory and it's um, low-lying land, it's steppe land, it's where the Ukrainian uh, wheat and other foodstuffs are, are grown and um, the terrain is more or less uh, featureless as it goes down to the to the Black Sea. So can you describe then what the nature of battle is in that southern area? I think we can all imagine uh, what it was like in the in the battles for the cities, but um, this sounds more like a sort of you know First World War, Second World War stuff with uh, you know long range uh, artillery exchanges. But eventually, ground has to be taken by uh, soldiers at rifle point, at grenade throwing distance. Is is that how it actually works out? Well, in in the end, as you say, uh, it is down to the infantry pe- uh, man or woman, and um, there has been close quarter combat. Um, but what's happened in uh, southern Ukraine is that uh, the Ukrainian forces have been able to make progress because of the arrival um, in the last two months of Western provided, chiefly by the US and Britain, um, sophisticated artillery, some of which uses um, ammunition that um, is smart ammunition, can be guided uh, after it's fired. So this is like the M77 howitzers and the HIMARS with the GMLRS uh, munitions. So that's presumably forcing the Russians uh, back. It's disrupting their supply lines. It's making... Uh, just the basic business of supporting the battle much more difficult. It is. And what it's vitally done, the new artillery that's arrived has a, a longer range than uh, the Russian artillery. Um, so Ukrainians can attack the Russian positions, they can attack um, supply lines behind the Russian positions, and they can move forward under cover of their own uh, now uh, sophisticated and very precise artillery. Also, um, the Russians um, um, occupied um, cities which uh, they said they had liberated, and they found that most of the population um, opposes them. Uh, the Russians have behaved badly, as we know, well, atrociously. Um, they've uh, uh, executed um, civilians, they've killed um, uh, prisoners of war, they've raped, um, carried out other actions, which has made the um, population that um, in the occupied areas very hostile to them. And this population has been cooperating with Ukrainian special forces, who, uh, which have been quite successful in um, entering towns and villages, striking at um, the Russian occupation forces, and then with, withdrawing. They haven't attempted really to hold these areas, but they've inflicted heavy casualties in Russian men, and they've also destroyed Russian uh, munitions depots and hardware. Is is that what happened at Saki at the airbase in Saki in Crimea? Is that pretty well how it was in your view an, an SF operation rather than a long range missile operation? 
I, I think that that is how it's emerging. Uh, it's likely to have been a, a combined operation where longer range missiles were used because satellite um, pictures seem to show three clear marks where missiles fell. Um, but there's also signs um, that there were Ukrainian special forces, or or they're sometimes called partisans, maybe local people, um, who also contributed to the attack by perhaps setting explosives. Yeah, there's some speculation that the SAS, who were tr- definitely training Ukrainian troops, might have been the inspiration for this. How are they being inserted? Is it, are they helicopter-borne operations, or are they going in by land? Um, no, they're walking in. Um, most of it is by foot because the Russians still have superior means. Um, in theory, they should control the skies and they have detection radar and other uh, detection mechanisms um, so that using helicopters or fixed wing aircraft, which Ukrainians have done, is uh, is very risky. Yeah. So just can I just bring you back to what you were, we were talking about the nature of, of the battle in the South. You, you mentioned uh, men and women uh, soldiers. To, what proportion of the ground troops are female? Um, it's difficult to tell, uh, but it, it's probably around 10 percent. Women are not conscripted, but women are free to join, and they have been joining, um, not just in traditional support roles. Um, there are combat troops that are, are women, and there are tank commanders, APC commanders, um, who are who are women. Uh, but the exact proportion is difficult to gauge. Yeah. Can we now expand to the, to the bigger picture? Because, as you'll be very well aware, Asko is about to go back to uh, Ukraine next week, and he's just come, been in, in the UK for a fortnight after spending the entire period of the war in and around Ukraine. So he's ideally situated to talk about both the small picture and the big picture. But as you know, there's been lots of speculation about uh, a possible autumn big push from either side. Not just most of the talk has been about a Ukrainian attempt to uh, having apparently held uh, the Russians back now to start reclaiming territory. But there's been sort of counter speculation, if you like, that uh, the Russians themselves may be planning uh, further advances or to try to break out from the stalemate they apparently are, uh, find themselves in now. What, what are your views on that? Um, well, the Russians must be um, considering some sort of preemptive um, attack uh, to prevent um, Ukraine advancing. Uh, they have uh, been uh, taken aback by uh, the ability of the Ukrainian forces to use uh, the uh, the new weapons that have been provided, the artillery pieces that you mentioned, and the um, rocket systems, which are also very sophisticated and have a long range and are very precise. Um, and they know that more of those are coming, and uh, they have already stepped up uh, attempts to disrupt the supply lines where this stuff um, comes over from Western Europe into into Ukraine. And we can expect uh, probably more attempts to do that. But we know from various um, sources, from um, American, British, and Ukrainian intelligence, and, and just uh, by piecing together things that are, are said in public in Russia, that they're having difficulty to recruit new troops to replace 
the number that had been killed and or wounded in action. And the Ukrainians say it's over 40,000, um, and um, British and American sources um, say it's probably about two, at least two-thirds of, of that. So these are very significant um, casualties, as well as equipment that's been destroyed. And um, it's probably a race for now whether the Russians can replace, can recruit and train people to um, replace their dead and wounded before sufficient amounts of the new weaponry provided by the West, but also sufficient numbers of um, um, Ukrainian, more Ukrainian troops can be trained to use them, come about and enable the Ukrainians to mount a significant um, advance or, or attack to try to recapture the southern areas of their country that were taken in the first few days of the war. But you do see uh, a big pushback in prospect. That's what you're expecting uh, this autumn, that there will be a counterattack which may, well, they, the Ukrainians hope, will change the the direction of the, of the war thus far. Um, again, British, American and Ukrainian um, sources keep saying that the second half of August and then September uh, will be very, very important. We'll see battlefield events and other um, things happening that should indicate or uh, how long um, this war will last and how it will progress. But I know from speaking myself to um, senior Ukrainian uh, military and politicians, advisors to the government, um, that the hope is that Ukraine will be able to make some sort of very significant advance in the south and um, push the um, Russian troops back into Crimea. That would then again um, prevent the Russians having a direct land route from Russia to Crimea, um, it would be um, an overpowering uh, morale uh, boost for Ukrainians and conversely would um, probably lead to um, dismay amongst the Russian military and the population in Crimea. Well, that was fascinating, Patrick, and he makes a number of really interesting points. And the, and the big one, you know, not a statistic I'd heard recently, is the massive superiority that the Russians still have in artillery. I mean, he described it as between eight to ten uh, on the Russian side and just one on the Ukrainian side. And of course, uh, more ammunition, too. And what this has allowed, is, as he pointed out, is for the Russians to make gains in the Donbass, where they have been making their most recent gains, albeit at a at a snail-like pace by saturating areas with rocket and artillery fire and literally destroying everything in their way. And that is, of course, the Russian way of warfare, or at least as they've shown in recent times, both in Grozny and also in Syria. Yeah, I think we can get a bit um, mesmerised by the high-tech kit on the Ukrainian side. Uh, it Certainly, it does change the nature of the battle, and it's a huge advantage. But <clears throat> at a certain point, even though it allows them to stand off and bombard the Russians at distance, at the end you've got to take ground and then you're moving into the killing zones that the Russian artillery can very effectively create. Um, but that, that northern battle, if you like, is quite different from the southern battle, as we were hearing from Askold. Uh, the artillery is much less useful uh, and this is kind of a you know, classic steppe land, the great you know, grain-growing areas. 
And um, th so there the battle is, you know, like you were saying, it's going to come down much more to uh, to a kind of infantry battle, uh, almost kind of, you know, uh, tr trench warfare uh, at, at the end of the day, I suppose. Yeah, and he um, he gave us the first really clear indication uh, from Ukrainian sources, which, of course, he you know, he's been speaking to both a political and military people recently of the effect that HIMARS, the the new long range artillery system uh, provided by the Americans in particular, is making because, as he puts it out, um, Ukrainians can now move forward under the cover. So it's not just striking long distance targets. And we'll talk a little bit about, about that as we move through the news later on in the program. But he, but he's also giving an indication. And this is, you know, makes a lot of sense that they're effectively using HIMARS as a, an artillery barrage, almost like a rolling barrage under the protection of which they can advance. And, and no doubt this is going to be absolutely crucial for the big push, which we're also going to discuss in the second part of the program. Yeah. Also, uh, I was struck by you know, his references to partisans using the old Second World War terminology. Um, and we're seeing a, a combination, it, it would appear, of uh, local partisan action combined with special forces operations, insertion by road or foot even, he was saying, not by air because that's too dangerous. Um, and that seems to certainly be having an effect. You know, even the Russians are, that we had last week that strike on the, the Saki air base, very, very significant in Crimea. The picture's not completely clear still, but there certainly seems to have been uh, SF uh, involvement. And um, that, that was, you know, a significant military blow, uh, spectacular damage done. There's been, uh, in the last few days, on Tuesday, we, we hear of an ammunition supply depot being blown up in northern Crimea. Now, in the, in the case of Saki, uh, the Russians came out with the usual kind of rather... A, uh, unbelievable story that this was a an ammunition fire. It was just a kind of uh, one of those things that happens. Um, but in the case of the the latest explosions, they're they're saying they're admitting that there is some skullduggery going on. They're blaming sabotage. So that sounds very much like it was another partisan slash SF op of some description. Now, I think it's worth saying here that they these strikes, as well as having military value, they have great propaganda value, especially in Crimea, which is big. Uh, holiday resort area for Russians. So there was lots of stuff posted. People were lying on the beaches seeing plumes of smoke coming up from the from the air base in the case of Saki and filming it and then taking to their cars and clogging the roads to escape uh, who, who knows what, you know, um, throwing caution to the wind. So they were, uh, or rather the other way around, actually, uh, deciding that um, their holiday had come to an abrupt end. So that has, you know, that's going to be posted all over the place on social media. And of course, that's going to, bring the message home to, to people in Russia that this isn't a, the fiction that this is a special military operation uh, is looking very threadbare, I would have thought by now. Yeah, absolutely right, Patrick. And uh, it's fascinating to me, really, what's causing these, uh, you know, the, the exact reason. I mean, Askol's interesting, wasn't he? He said he thinks it's a combination of both uh, long range missiles, which the Americans, of course, have ruled out. They haven't actually given them to the Ukrainians. So what actually are they using to cover this sort of distance, which is about 120 to 140 miles? I mean, it's fascinating to speculate on whether or not they have actually got kit that the Americans haven't uh, admitted. And as Askold points out, and there's been in the press this week, there are signs of three large craters, which would not have been caused um, by the sort of munitions used by special forces. So is it a combination of the two, as you pointed out? But, you know, as you've also mentioned, there have been more strikes this week. They, the ammunition or munitions supply depot, but also an airport near Simferopol, which is 
in the center of, of Crimea. And they're really beginning to ramp up the attacks on uh, Crimea. As you say, it's partly propaganda, but it has ha- it is having a military effect. And of course, one of the announcements made by uh, official Ukrainian sources this week is this is an indication we are sooner or later going to take back the Crimea. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. That, that concentration on the Crimea um, is an indication of, of future intent. We'll come on to that a bit later about what Ukrainian ultimate war aims are. Um, just another point, 10% of Ukrainian forces are female and they're, um, they're all volunteers. They're not conscripted and they're not just in traditional support roles, but they're in frontline combat roles, including, I was, I was very impressed to hear, uh, tank and APC commanders. So that's the Ukrainian side, but we haven't heard anything from the Russian side. Have you read any reports anywhere of Russian female soldiers in the front line? No, there's a long tradition of this, as, as you and I both know from the Second World War. There are significant numbers of women who, who fought not just in support roles, but in, in combat roles. And therefore, you might have assumed that it would be the same today. But I think if you if you go going back to your point about this, you know, this special operation, which is just being carried out by our, you know, our professional military doesn't well, our professional military with conscripts, of course, doesn't really fit into the idea that it's all hands to the pump and we need we even need women in in front line roles so maybe that's a, also a propaganda element that is that is uh, counting against the Russians using anyone available on the, the Ukrainian side of course it is all hands to the pump it's national survival and and it's you know it's extraordinary and really quite impressive to think that women are fighting in the front lines as you pointed out as tank commanders i mean you know really amazing stuff there is a long tradition not just in russian uh, uh military history, but also all European countries. It's interesting. I had a student many years ago working on uh, women fighting during the Napoleonic Wars, and they fought on on all sides and not just in support roles. So there's a long tradition of this, as we well know, but it's really striking to hear that that percentage from the Ukrainian side. Yeah. Uh, on the Russian side, apparently, it's, uh, it's 4%. Uh, that compares with, that's of all uh, women serving in uh, all arms of the um, uh, of their sort of defence forces, uh, and that compares with eleven percent in in the UK. I could, it's pretty low that number four percent, but I can see why, given what we've heard about the kind of bullying culture uh, that exists in the uh, Russian armed forces, it's hardly a very attractive uh, career option. I would have thought. Yes, exactly right. Um, uh, <laughs> so a c- combination of culture and all, and also you know let's not let's not panic everyone by by making it seem that you know we need large numbers of women to do the fighting. Um, and I think both of us conclude that the Russians must be considering some kind of uh, preemptive attack before the counteroffensive. This much vaunted Ukrainian counteroffensive against Kherson. So, well, everything is pointing to uh, a, a big increase in the tempo of the fighting with a Ukrainian big counteroffensive, which they've made no secret of. It's all part of the mind games, of course, that the uh, that the politicians are playing with their with their uh, opposite numbers. Uh, the Ukraine Moscow uh, psychological tussle that's been going on, um, and so in the second half, we'll be talking about what the Russians options are. Uh, they're obviously not necessarily uh, in the place that they pretend they are in. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of kind of underlying weaknesses in their position. So um, not just in, in questions of the, the rival technologies and superiority that the Ukrainians now seem to be getting, which to some extent counteracts the Russian superiority in numbers, etc. Anyway, we're going to talk about all that in part two, uh, as well as a roundup, all the latest news 
on the military, political and diplomatic fronts. So we'll be back shortly. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Uh, well, what we've seen in recent days is a clear indication from British, American and Ukrainian sources uh, indicating that the second half of August and early September is going to see significant battlefield events and that those might determine how long the war will last. So we're really getting to uh, crunch events now. Um, we know from speaking to senior U- Ukrainian military and politicians and advisors to government is that the hope that the Ukrainians will be able to make a significant advance in the south and push the Russian troops back into Crimea. That, of course, is going to end the land bridge to Crimea and would be a huge morale boost for Ukraine. And, you know, on the other hand, of course, dismay uh, the Russian military and the Russian population in the Crimea. Yeah, I mean, we've we've, uh, said before and we've heard nothing since to contradict uh, the reports that the morale is pretty low. Uh, among Russian troops, uh, there were some reports coming out of Kherson actually that uh, they no longer send uh, dead, the dead soldiers back to to Russia, but are incinerating them on the spot in these special trucks that drive around behind the troops. I can't imagine that does much for morale either. Anyway, um, I think more significantly, they seem to be manoeuvring to uh, confront a big offensive. We've seen. Uh, in the last week or so, reports coming in that they're actually shifting significantly their um, posture around the Kherson area. So uh, very significantly, I think they've there were reports which haven't been contradicted that they're moving command posts uh, from the west uh, bank of the Dnipro, the river that really divides uh, Ukraine in two, uh, to the east bank, but leaving substantial numbers of troops on the other side, on the west bank. Um, now, that makes them very vulnerable. Uh, the three bridges across the uh, Dnipro in the Kherson area, two road bridges and one rail bridge, have been very severely damaged by long-range rocket artillery to the point where they're kind of impassable. So actually getting supplies to these soldiers is going to be really down to um, getting trundling trucks across some uh, pontoon bridges across the river, which are also very vulnerable. We've seen images before of those being smashed up by by Ukrainian artillery. Um, so the logic, I suppose, is that uh, they're moving the command post back so that there is actually someone in charge to tell the soldiers what to do on the ground. But it, it can't be very much fun if you're stuck there knowing that your superiors have decided to retreat beyond <laughs> uh, rocket range and that you're expected to now try and hold up uh, what will be uh, any day soon uh, a, a huge Ukrainian attack. That's right. And it also hints at a bigger possibility, uh, and that is that the Russians have already decided they're overstretched and given their difficulties with manpower and equipment, possibly uh, have gone as far as they can. Uh, also that they've no real prospect of, of increasing their gains and therefore are preparing to fall back to secure land they already have in the Donbass. Um, 
This fits, of course, with another plausible theory of how Putin sees the war playing out and a possible endgame that may be high on the list of the options that the Kremlin is considering. Yeah, we touched on this last week, but I think it's... uh... This is going to be an ongoing question, uh, which is very much a part of Putin's calculations. And that's whether public enthusiasm for the Ukrainian cause, which is uh, very strong in Britain, very strong in the US, but is perhaps a bit more nuanced in continental Europe, will start to slacken. And the main reason being suggested in some quarters for this is that the cost of living crisis, which is being felt everywhere, Um, will actually start impacting on the political decisions being made in the West. I mean, Saul is currently in Greece at the moment, uh, aboard his yacht, which he bought with the proceeds of of our last podcast on the (laughs) Falklands. What's it like there? there? So I'm just kidding about the... uh, This is a labour of love, a labour of love. Anyway, but but, but Greece is one of the poorest countries in in Europe. And, uh, you know, they're going to feel energy price rises harder than almost anyone, I would have thought. Is that having a political effect? Have you picked up anything like that in, in, in your travels? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they haven't stepped out of line yet in terms of public opinion um, uh, turning against the war for the reasons you've already pointed out. But it is tough here. Um, they rely hugely on tourism. I'm trying to do my bit, of course. Um, and they were hard, very hard hit by, uh, by COVID. Uh, and and therefore the you know the rising fuel prices, which everyone needs to you know to get about and and supplies and economy in general, is is the double whammy really. So yes, there is a danger that places like Greece. There's no obvious indication of it yet. I've seen a lot of Ukrainian flags around, although at the same time there are also plenty of Russian tourists, uh, which you may or may not be surprised to hear, uh, Patrick. I sometimes think you know they might be sensible to keep their actual um, Russian identity a little bit quiet because they may not be that popular, but they're proudly flying their Russian flags from their yachts. Um, But yes, there's no indication that that they're uh, stepping out of line yet. Yeah, I think the um, this is at this stage speculation. My feeling would be that, you know, public uh, anger is more likely to be directed at um, the energy companies and the huge profits they're making rather than Ukraine's Ukrainians for um, for the rising energy bills. But I think that, you know, Putin's obviously calculating that once winter comes, uh, this will become an issue and will translate into political pressure on European governments to tone down support for Ukraine, which will then find itself uh, increasingly isolated. That's the danger. We, We get a scenario where Putin can claim victory and declare a certain area of captured Ukrainian territory has been restored to Russian sovereignty. I mean, that's clearly this sort of irredentist claim. I mean, that's clearly one of the end games. Um, he'll magnanimous, magnanimously announce that the operation is now at an end. No more territory will be taken. Um, but of course, I think we know, Patrick, the Ukrainians in their current mood will never accept that. So they will keep on fighting and Putin maybe hopes start to look like the intransigent ones. Uh, so it's all going to be very interesting to watch how this aspect develops. And I think if governments want to forestall this development, they would be wise to start presenting the crisis as an opportunity that will eventually wean Western Europe off its dependency on Russian oil and gas. And this certainly seems to be happening a little bit. Yeah, but not enough in my view. I, mean, I, I think there is a, a huge strategic tilt going on here, um, which I don't think the politicians make enough of and say, look, you know, this is OK, it's a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. Uh, and the world will you've always got to try and accentuate the positive in any war and what good may come out of it. But good may come out of this war in 
so far as well two things i think one is uh, from our own kind of selfish western perspective that we do actually uh, end our dependency on autocratic regimes like russia for for uh, our energy of course there's another one in saudi arabia which we don't talk about but um uh, and the other one, well, of course, that the principle is, is re-established that aggression doesn't pay. Um, but these uh, ends are a long way off and we've got a lot of fighting to do before we get to that point. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the um, significant developments in the last week. We've already mentioned a few, um, but there was a, a, an announcement by Britain, um, I'm pleased to say, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, saying that the UK is going to send further multiple launch rocket systems or MLRS similar to HIMARS, to Ukraine, uh, and also, and this is important, a significant number of precision-guided M31A1 missiles, which can strike targets up to 50 miles away. And of course, this is all going to help Ukraine to defend itself against Russian heavy artillery, uh, as we've pointed out. They also talk about, or Wallace also talks about, Britain's commitment to train up to 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers in infantry battlefield skills over the coming months, and quite a few other countries, including Canada, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and the Netherlands, have announced they will be supporting that program. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting, that one, isn't it? Because you sort of wonder where the trainees will come from. You know, Ukraine's a pretty militarised society by now. We were hearing from IRCA last week that the best and the brightest, you know, people, university lecturers, IT whizzes, uh, they're all out there on the front lines doing the fighting, you know. So I, I wonder what capacity there actually is that needs to be trained up. Um, well, on top of that, there's also an announcement at the Copenhagen conference last week that Britain's going to put 250 million uh, of the recently announced 1 billion uh, it's pledged into the International Fund for Ukraine, which is a, a low bureaucracy fund, which will be used again to provide military equipment and other support. Uh, and the fund is really about keeping this flow of money and uh, flow of new weaponry in. That's, you know, one of the great fears of the Ukrainians is that as the as the enthusiasm for the war, war weariness generally sort of sets in, uh, those supplies will start to dry up. So this is a kind of indication that that uh, Ukraine's supporters are in for the long haul. Yeah, and there's also an interesting uh, report earlier this week by the Reuters correspondent Natalia Zinets, um, and she talks about the you know this really grim story about the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant in southern Ukraine. Uh, and the call by the U.S. Secretary General Antonio Guterres for the establishment of a demilitarized zone. Now, what seems to have been going on there, and it's confusing, Patrick, because there are lots of lots of conflicting reports, is that the Russians have been shelling the plant in an attempt to cut off the electricity supply to Ukraine's remaining territory, thus risking a nuclear catastrophe. We mentioned this last week briefly, I think, um, uh, in in some of the calls that were happening on the on the British side to, you know, we really need to take a note of this. This is a really serious issue. And the plant dominates the south bank of a vast reservoir, the Dnipro River, um, with Ukrainian forces controlling the towns and cities on the opposite bank. And not only have the Russians been shelling part of the plant, they've also moved kit in quite close to the plant, which sounds a bit of a contradiction in terms, uh, in the hope that they can... Uh, far from those positions and the Ukrainians won't fire back. So it's really a, a scary situation at Zaporizhia. And the sooner something is done about that, as as the US Secretary General has called for, the establishment of a demilitarized zone, the better. But whether that's actually going to happen, uh, given Russian intransigence, is another matter. Yeah. Now, on the diplomatic front, the um, Russia's 
isolation has, of course, naturally driven it uh, closer to international pariahs like North Korea. Uh, in July, North Korea recognized as independent states the Russian-backed breakaway so-called People's Republics in Donetsk and Lugansk. And on Monday, President Putin uh, told, apparently, according to North Korean uh, state media, that, that um, Putin told Kim Jong-un that the two countries would expand uh, comprehensive and constructive ties. So I think that's a bit, I don't think that's, that's something to cheer about. If I was a Russian, I wouldn't be particularly excited by that. Incidentally, there's also been a, an arms fair uh, in Russia. I don't know where it is exactly, but the Russians are still flogging kit uh, to potential buyers and 70 representatives, uh, or rather representatives from 70 different countries turned up. And I'm amazed that uh, you would actually want to buy anything off the Russians in these circumstances because their performance of their armour, everything they've uh, thrown at the Ukrainians, yeah, I mean, it's effective in a, like we were saying before, in a kind of Second World War, Stalingrad sort of way, but uh, it doesn't really sort of seem to bear much relevance to the modern world. But there we are. Yeah, well, slightly more encouraging news uh, about the grain consignments. Um, we mentioned last time that the first one to leave had been rejected by its buyer as past its sell-by date. And that might have led people to conclude that, well, it's all going to be uh, inedible. Well, uh, the latest news this week is that more convoys have left Ukraine bound for Syria and Ethiopia, where the food is really needed. And all we can say, Patrick, until we hear more updated uh, news is that these consignments are edible and that they can help to relieve, uh, you know, what is a potentially a famine situation. Yeah, and that story is a very interesting story because it sort of did actually give us a glimpse of how complicated uh, these transactions are. You know, you'd think it'd be a fairly straightforward process, but there were all sorts of middlemen involved. In the case of that first consignment, it was a Lebanese buyer uh, who then rejected it on the grounds of quality, but it was then actually bought up elsewhere. So there was actually a sort of happy ending to that story. But the great thing about that was it proved it could be done, even with all the kind of potential dangers of shipping uh, these consignments, uh, it got through and that encouraged other people, I think, to follow suit. Um, now, 99-year-old Henry Kissinger has been giving us the benefit of his wisdom on uh, on the, the kind of global situation lately. And uh, he seems to be arguing for um, a less absolutist, if you like, approach by the Ukrainians and saying that, um, you know, the aim should be, everyone should be encouraging negotiations rather than stiffening the Ukrainians' resolve to hold out for the uh, recapture of all their stolen territory. What did you make of his intervention there? Well, he drew a lot of flack for that, of course, because, uh, and actually it's a little bit more nuanced than that, Patrick, because his original argument was that he felt that the reason we're in this mess is because of the way Ukraine had behaved after the fall of communism. It had been very, you know, sort of triumphalist. and, And also it had expanded its remit, of course, much closer to uh, to Russia uh, in contravention of a, an alleged sort of verbal agreement at the end of uh, at the end of the Cold War, uh, and therefore making uh, Russia more paranoid, and that this, in some senses, has contributed to the situation we're in at the moment. Well, uh, that was controversial, but he seems to have changed tack a little bit because he's recently published an article in the Wall Street Journal that uh, that suggests he no longer thinks that Ukrainian alignment with the West was the problem. On the other hand, he now thinks it's the solution. So, you know, the long term future for Ukrainian security is, I think he's arguing, he now believes um, joining NATO. 
Um, I think I've got some sympathy with the view that uh, we didn't really seize that wonderful opportunity uh, after the, the collapse of the communist system when there was, it's clear, you know, widespread uh, optimism in Russia that this could really be the, the moment when they do actually break out of their sort of historical addiction to tyranny um, and embrace the West. I mean, I did say that in a kind of, you know, I mean, Russia must, of course, hang on to its cultural traditions, its wonderful history and identity. Um, but, you know, it, it was basically moving forward together rather than them suddenly all becoming Western European Democrats. Um, and I think we did actually bungle that opportunity. And, of course, that window closed very quickly. So I've got, I've got some sympathy with that view. But, you know, very rapidly it became clear after Putin's takeover that this was a man... Uh, who didn't in any way conform to the sort of bedrock values that that uh, we share in Western democracies, and that he was to be treated with huge caution. And of course, that didn't happen. There was endless appeasement uh, and endless attempts, really just you know cynical attempts to uh, exploit uh, the Russian economy and it to enrich individuals and and corporations. And so, uh, yeah, sort of capitalist greed, if you were being a, a Marxist, uh, I think has a lot to answer for. Well, we're going to end with some happier news. Uh, that is that the mayor of Kiev, the former world champion boxer Vitaly Klitschko, is calling on residents to return to the city as it's now far better defended than it was uh, at the beginning of the conflict. It's got in much improved air defences and anti-rocket systems, etc. And Klitschko said, I can tell right now that everyone who's ready to come home is welcome. He added that he couldn't guarantee their safety 100%, but that life there was much, much more secure. OK, well, that's all we have time for this week. But do join us next time when we'll round up the latest news and hear from Orlando Fijes, one of the world's leading authorities on Russian history. Uh, and he'll be telling us about the long enmity between Russia and Ukraine, Putin's decision to go to war and the likely outcome. Do join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.